Hello and welcome back once again to the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast. This is episode 221. John and Paul talk HR and pro wrestling. I'm your host, John. And I'm Paul. John, how's it going? Paul, I'm well. You're not Wendy. No, I'm not. No one is Wendy except Wendy. (laughs) That is indeed the case. Welcome back. I'm very, very excited to have you with me today. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, Looking forward to our conversation. I think before we get too far, Paul, we're in the month of May and we're being sponsored by our friends over at Namely for the entire month. Do want to acknowledge them for sponsoring this episode. And Wendy and I have been really fortunate to work with Namely for some time now. And I don't know how much you've followed their path over the last many years. They're really good people. And it's really exciting to see that they're being recognized in the HR community, the HR tech community for some of the things that they've done. Recently, they won a Stevie Award for Business Excellence and then also a, a 2022 Excellence in Customer Service Award. We love Namely. You've heard the show enough to know that. It's nice that people that we work with are being recognized by their peers and, and by the industry for the good that they're doing. Thanks, Namely. We're glad you're with us. Congratulations on those opportunities that you've had. Now, probably wondering, what what is Paul doing here? Where's Wendy? Those of you who listen to the show for a long time, Sometimes we have run into technical difficulties. Things don't work. Technology is great till it's not, Paul. Would you agree? I mean, that's kind of how life works. That's actually one of my mottos that I I, (laughs) I talk to a lot about with my staff. We had some recording issues over the last many weeks. And then unfortunately, Wendy's had some family commitments that have kept her away from home. So I was thinking about it and we talked about, do we do a clip show? And I said, no, I don't want to do a clip show. Those are good, but that's not us. And I, you know, honestly, Paul, you may not know this. Of course, I've done all the editing all these years. I don't keep bloopers, so I couldn't do a blooper reel. I was thinking about the fact that I haven't talked to you in a little bit. And we also both appreciate professional wrestling very much. So we're going to have a conversation a little bit about you. And we're going to talk about HR and professional wrestling, but not necessarily HR in professional wrestling. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, maybe not together. Uh, I, I think there's some overlaps maybe, but you have to wait and find out and see where we kind of go with this. But uh, I was super excited when you, you uh, reached out to me and just said, hey, let's talk about this. I was like, yes, let's do it. We're going to talk about you a little bit first. Can't get started without asking. We'll let everybody know we're kind of recording off cycle. It's a, a daytime record for us. Paul, what's in your glass? I love this question. It's the greatest question of all time, but uh, I'm drinking a tall boy of a liquid death mango chainsaw. For those unfamiliar, it's just flavored water that's designed to murder your thirst and destroy plastic waste. Uh, So there's a little plug for liquid death. Maybe we can get you hooked up with liquid death like we did Tracy Sponnenberg with Spindrift, you know? I I, I see that. (laughs) They have that cheese of Spinfluence, or you could be a liquid death dealer. I kind of like that. I'm going to, I'm going to try to take that one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, let's do it. We'll figure it out, man. <laughs> Paul, you, you've been on the show a few times as a guest most recently. And, and this is hard to believe it's episode 123, which was July of 2020. What have you been up to since then? Yeah. It's uh when you said that date, I was like, Oh my God, already. It's kind of time just flies. And I remember that recording like it was the other day. A month after that recording, uh, my wife and I had our second child, Kian. I have officially founded my side gig consulting business since then, uh, HR Logic LLC. So I get to add the LLC to it now, and it sounds more uh, authentic, I guess. <laughs> I've done a lot of virtual speaking engagements, sprinkled in with some live ones. Uh, one of the ones I 
absolutely was mind blowing to me was I did Disrupt HR in St. Louis. Oh, wow. Jennifer McClure and Lori Rudiman were both there and having them cheer me on in the the audience was just kind of like what has gone, uh, what has happened in my life that this is now part (laughs) of my life. But um, another in-person event that I was really, really proud of was uh, as part of the the inaugural social media team with uh, Jeff Pukowski and Mary Williams at the Wisconsin State Sherm. So they were trying to mimic and I thought very successfully some of the social media stuff that bigger conferences do. We were there plugging it and I've won a few awards. I was really proud of, especially the HR unite award, Tina Marie out of HR unite in uh, Michigan. That was just mind blowing that that even happened. And I got that recognition. So just a lot of craziness. It's all very positive craziness and new additions to the family and, and opportunities to do different things. I think one of the exciting things that I got to see for you in that period of time since you were last on is you were promoted to the vice president of people and culture within your organization. Maybe you can remind folks a little bit about what that group does. Talk about that shift in mindset from HR to people and culture. And what would you tell others that are attempting to take that next step, not only with increased duties, but maybe shifting that mindset I'm glad you asked because that's something I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, I work for the Community and Economic Development Association in Chicago. We do social service work for low-income individuals and try and help them out of poverty. The switch from HR to people and culture is just the continued evolution of where we're going. You know, words matter uh, because they hold us accountable for our actions. That's just kind of my philosophy. I start a lot of my presentations with why is HR so evil? And I have a slide deck up there with like Dilbert and all these memes making fun of HR. And it's meant to break the ice and, and, and do. But to me, I was inspired really by Lars Schmidt's redefining HR. I'm not sure if you've read it uh, or have seen it or how many people in the audience have, but it's must read for any HR professional. After I read his book, he was really talking about a lot of things I was feeling, but I just couldn't really put into words. So I used his book as a springboard to convince the CEO that this is the right direction we needed to go to continue to repair uh, the HR department after years of, of challenges. You know, I would advise anyone that, again, even though words matter, it's not enough. You really have to back it up to really change the perception of HR to move from what Lars called legacy human resources to modern human resources. You have to change your mindset. So HR can't be just compliance driven, just not bureaucratic forms and being the no police. You have to really shift to being a department of innovation, supporting people and getting to yes, unless it's dumb or illegal, right? (laughs) So I think the people puts that front and center. So it was just a culmination of my mindset and where I was at the time and and where I, I think the profession should be going. So you're in the midst of shifting this mindset really looking at the people piece, let's just throw it out there. In the midst of all that, we all get this thing called COVID-19 dropped on top of all of us. We've talked about it a lot on here. We probably talked about it when you were with us last time, but it was still fairly early during the pandemic. Talk about how you traverse that. So you're making this people shift, the ideology shift and the words matter. You're dealing with the pandemic and how we're going to traverse that. What was the most impactful thing that you learned from that experience and how's it made you a better practitioner and leader? 
Yeah, you know, this uh, this was hard for me to answer because I don't know if I've actually taken time to think about it. So I thank you for making me think about it, um, you know, especially because the last two years, I think, have just been a blur uh, for a lot of people. I just talked about we talked two years ago on the podcast and I blink and all of a sudden I'm talking to you again. But I think the most impactful lesson, I think people are both simultaneously strong and fragile. You know, we have these capabilities to weather these type of storms. We can be gracious and have humility, but at the exact same time, succumb to the more basic urges of cave people, nature. So I learned or maybe re-realized, if that's even a word, that life happens. All of this has happened before. Nothing is truly unprecedented. It's not. It's just we haven't experienced it. Right. So it's it's learning from the past and just trying to be prepared to be better right now and hold off those basic urges. And then I, I also appreciate how you ask, how's COVID made me a better practitioner? I think it's been just trying to understand that despite my attempt to be humble in a lot of ways, uh, I am a subject matter expert and people look to me for that expertise. And I had to accept this and just get comfortable with it. And, and that's okay. Understand it's not a bad thing to be a subject matter expert. That's the whole point of the diversity of labor, right, in our in our economy. So I've really grown to embrace that side of me, and it's helped, I think, a lot with my confidence and just how I approach being an HR practitioner. I know this now, so I just own it and help people make better decisions based on that. You and I can agree that we are certainly not through the woods quite yet. I don't know if we're ever going to get there. Sometimes it feels like, and but we're kind of on the other side of it, at least in theory. As we see people start to revert in some ways, uh, maybe making choices or making moves that, let's just say it, maybe it's not quite popular going back to the norm, for lack of a better word. What do you think, Paul's the biggest challenge we're going to see as practitioners over the next year? And how are you preparing yourself and, and your team for that? I think you kind of alluded to it, honestly, in your lead up to it, but I think relationship management, and I'm not a big fan of the phrase labor relations. I just, I think it's workplace relationships. To me, everybody is a laborer in a sense, right? From the CEO down, everybody is laboring. It's just a different kind of labor. So again, going back to words matter, uh, I don't like the view of us versus them, zero sum game that really has a uh, labor relations sort of, I think, embodies in a lot of things or might come to your mind when you say that right away. There's a growing tension or there had been a growing tension before COVID, honestly, and it's just been exasperated since between management, frontline employees, you need to come and work in the office versus workplace flexibility, the tension between mask wearers and, and mask non-wearers, just the continued political dysfunction, however you want to define it. All these things impact the organization, right? And HR needs to figure out how to navigate and influence towards balance uh, in a lot of ways, desperately needed balance. So, and, and I'm not talking about going all Thanos on people and, and getting the infinity stones, right? For the snap. To me, it, it's really realizing and accepting that we're all part of the same whole. I mean, we're all connected. So when one of us is sick, all of us is sick. Organization, think of that. The, the root word of that is organism, right? A, a being. HR needs to figure out how to be the conduit for productive relationship building. Now, 
how I prepare my team for this is I, I just talk about it openly with them. And I try and lead by example. When one of my staff says something that catches my ear, I'll be like, you know, why don't you take the rest of the day off, go spend it with family, try and figure out what you need to figure out. And then as long as the work gets done later on, I don't really care. Um, this is helping you in the, in the right now. And hopefully that can spread out throughout the, again, the organization. You and I will have a labor relations conversation someday offline about the zero sum game because it is out there. It is interesting, the labor movement and the shift. I think to your point, the last two years have only exacerbated a systemic issue for a lot of people. And it is, it's very interesting to see who's going to be successful in the long run flexibility, whatever it may be. You know, I, I don't know if your team is entirely remote or is allowed to be remote or if you have the options for that or, you know, everybody's got to do what works best for them. But then you have to figure out what works best for the organization doesn't necessarily be best work for that person. To me, that's one of the biggest things that I continue to see is, is that push-pull tug. And, and unfortunately, like I said, so many people thinking you got to come back. What, what, what are we gaining from that? Are we gaining what we think we're going to gain? I agree with everything that you just said. And, uh, you know, there should be reasons behind these certain things, right? You know, it's like if you were getting the work done at home and it wasn't detrimental, but you're still making people come back to the office, you don't have much of a leg to stand on. And, and, and this is just my own personal view. I think COVID has just made me realize that people are bad at relationships <laughs> <laughs> um, for what that's worth. And uh, I think it just boils down, just, just be a good person at the end of the day and everything else will figure itself out. If you're a good person, people will well, they'll trust you and they'll work with you and they'll be more willing to accept what they otherwise would not accept. If you're a jerk, they're not going to accept what they weren't going to accept. So <laughs> I, you know, and, and there's no guarantees in any of it, but at least at the end of the day, relationship management just starts with being a good person. And I, that's what I hope people can start to get out of this. Paul, you were kind enough in the last year to raise your hand when we asked about co-hosting the Twitter chats, uh, which we'll throw out again for those of you listening. We're always looking for co-hosts and people that have great topics. Paul, you came to us and said you wanted to talk about coming from the HR philosopher standpoint. You you exemplify that to me in, in all the conversations I have. And I always point to you and say, this is the guy you need to talk to when you're having these types of conversations. So I would say we had certainly, I believe, the most cerebral chat we ever had when we when we had yours. Talk to me a little bit about what did you learn from that experience? And then a shameless plug to get people to check out the chat. What keeps you attending when you're not co-hosting? <laughs> you know, I love that chat. Uh, and, and I was like, I'll just throw this out there and see if it sticks kind of a thing. Because I, I did know it was it was related, but not fully relay what people are used to with uh, the HR chats, right? So I'm glad that you and Wendy took a uh, took a leap of faith and allowed me to be a part of it. I think the, the biggest thing I learned was just how much work it actually is. You don't really think about it, but I mean, newfound respect uh, for both of you. I think just writing the engage and trying to write engaging questions, uh, posting the questions, but then you have to answer your own questions just to keep the conversation going. But then at the same time, you have to be engaging with people as they are also engaging. And then you have to reply to them, not just the, hey, how are you doing? Thanks for coming. But you're retweeting or replying to something that they really made you think about. I think that hour went by in like five minutes because it was just total nonstop action. Uh, 
see what I did there, but I did. Um, I just loved it. Uh, it, it was a great experience. And, and if anybody wants to raise your hand, reach out to John and Wendy and do it. But I keep coming back because y'all are my people. I value you and I value Wendy. I value the community. I love learning what other people have gone through as a way of hoping that either I can reproduce it or I can avoid it. There is wisdom in a lot of the folks that come to these Twitter chats. So that's what keeps me coming, just the connections. And I wish I could see the folks more often, but it is what it is. And this is our way of being able to connect with folks across the country. With that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast is brought to you by Namely. We all do our best to keep ahead of business trends, but keeping ahead can be its own full-time job. With everyone wearing multiple hats, it's easy to fall behind. That's why you need to make the switch to Namely, the all-in-one HR solution that adapts with your business. Namely helps you and your team with all aspects of HR, from onboarding and performance management to payroll and intuitive benefits enrollment. Whether you have 50 or 1,000 employees, all in one connected and modern platform. Plus, Namely is customizable for your company, culture, and goals, so they can match where you are now and adapt as you grow. Grow with Namely and learn more about making the switch today by going to Namely.com. For a limited time, get one month free when you make that switch to Namely. Thanks again to Namely for sponsoring the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast. And now, back to the show. And welcome back. And Paul, we've gotten the HR talk out of the way, or maybe not. We may be having a little bit more here. We're going to talk professional wrestling. Many of you that have listened to the show or follow us on Twitter know we talk about these things. I got back into watching after many years being away from it during COVID, which I I think a lot of people found new hobbies or different things. During that time, I got more and more involved and I got really into it again, which I just didn't necessarily expect would happen. And then earlier this year with Twitter, because let's face it, there's a hashtag for everything. We created the hashtag HR Marks, where you, and, and with the two of us and, and many of our peers, talk about this very subject. I'm going to show my age. I grew up watching territory wrestling, particularly Memphis, in the late 70s. How did you get started in your professional wrestling watching career? <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, showing my age a little bit, but not a, not as much, I guess. But really <laughs> Thank late you. 80s. Um, <laughs> not as much, but really uh, it started in the late 80s, um, a little bit into the early 90s. What it really was, you know, because it wasn't as big back then and, you know, pay-per-views and cable was still in its youth and all that. So you can't really watch a lot of it other than uh, uh, it was WWF Superstars of Wrestling. And I don't know if you remember that show, but it was every Saturday oh, yeah. morning. That's really when I got started liking it. And then I go through ebbs and flows, I think, like you. What really cemented my love of wrestling hardcore was the Monday Night Wars in the late 90s that every wrestling fan knows, WCW versus WWF, and how that became less of a hobby at that point in like little kid interest to, to more of a, oh my God, this is great. I got to watch it all the time. Now, a lot of people that are listening may poo-poo this whole thing. And we should be very clear. We are adults. We are well-educated individuals. We're productive <laughs> members of society. We realize that it is predetermined, and we're going to talk. <laughs> we're going to give some wrestling 101 lingo here in a minute. I, I just want to make make people aware that we know it's a show. It is a athletic event that 
is predetermined. But wow, some of the athleticism and the performance level of these individuals that are part of this crazy world is is something to behold. What was the draw for you or what what kept you watching from starting with the wars back in the 90s or getting back then? What keeps you watching now? What, what Why are you so interested in, in this world? Before I get into that, just real quick on what you said, I always laugh at that too because um... – if someone were to say, well, you know, it's not real, right? Well, you know, Bridgerton isn't real, right? That didn't really happen. <laughs> what? Um, it's, it's like, duh. I, of course I know. But why don't I hit you over the head with a steel chair and you tell me that it is not real? I hate when people say it's fake. Yeah. There's a difference between fake and predetermined. I, I, yes. you know, and, and let's face it, you and I have not broken our bodies doing some of these amazing things that they were able to do. Or if mm-hmm. the margin of error is so small, talk about so often, they don't have stunt doubles. These are people right. doing this work often every night of the week or, or a lot. It's performance art. You know, it's it's uh, it's taking a play and mixing it with gymnastics and creating a show out of it. And that's that's how I look at it. But what keeps me watching is I appreciate that art. I appreciate really good writing. I appreciate storylines and the physicality because you and I were talking a little bit before this, but uh, a, a wrestler recently at a, at a recent event, Darby Allen climbed a 20 foot ladder that was already in the ring that is three feet up and did a, a diving spin off onto a whole bunch of steel chairs. And we're just like, what is he doing? So <laughs> I appreciate that people care enough to entertain us and they have fun up to a point, you know, as much as you can fund landing on steel chairs. And again, kind of like you, I've been kind of on and off over the last couple of decades. You know, WWE used to be WWF. I just don't like the product and haven't liked their product in a couple decades. But, I mean, just the writing and characters, and it's like, eh, it doesn't captivate me. But what really reinvigorated me over the last couple of years was one AEW, All Elite Wrestling. And to me, it's really returned to the quote-unquote wrestling it's not sports entertainment so that's really what draws me back and keeps me coming is is that love of wrestling and what at least me as a fan connect to interestingly enough on your hr philosopher blog you had written a post about wrestling and hr and i found it i don't i don't think i've ever told you this but it said everything i'd ever want to say about my interest and i don't want to say i'm going to say it my passion my interest for this world. You know, I have a hard time calling it uh, sports entertainment. I I prefer the more traditional uh, wrestling, again, predetermined. We all know that. You were so eloquent in explaining some things. What led you to write that blog to begin with? Thanks for sharing that. That means a lot. Um, And I appreciate you for doing that. Um, You know, I wrote that literally that night or the next morning or day, or day after a, a recent AEW pay-per-view, it was uh, AEW All Out. And it was one of the greatest pay-per-views I had ever seen. And that's not really hyperbole. Um, it was almost perfect in, in just the way that the writing was perfect. The wrestling was perfect. All the storylines. I mean, and at this, wrestling fans will know, but, you know, at this particular pay-per-view, this was CM Punk's re- in-ring return after eight years hiatus. Uh, the Lucha Brothers defeated the Young Bucks, and both those names are, are big in, in the tag team circle. It was one of the best cage matches I'd ever seen. Kenny Omega, who is just always amazing. Um, and then at AEW, Adam Cole and Brian Danielson had showed up 
and shocked the crowd. And they had just defected from WWE over to AEW. And it just felt real again. You know, uh, it felt like late nineties, that, that feeling that I used to get. So I was just really riding that high at the time and marking out so hardcore. So I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to make HR connections to it. You know what? I, I didn't think it was that much of a stretch. So I'm just going to throw it out there and see what happens. We're going to share a link to that blog in the show notes for people to check that out. We're going to do a little wrestling 101 for folks that have never been around it at all or, or, or listening to us going, John, Paul, what are you guys talking about? These are some terms you're going to hear. Uh, you'll see them in Paul's blog, but you'll also hear them when you talk about wrestling. Paul, what's a baby face? That's the good guy. And then what's a heel? It's the bad guy. That's one of the beauties of these things. If Simple storytelling, good and evil, <laughs> right? Baby faces and heels. When they're creating these stories, then what's a work? That's part of the story. It's anything that's planned to happen. So it's part of the act, part of the show. And what's a shoot? It's the opposite. That's anything that was not planned. Uh, it's a surprise. It's like, oh, crap. Sometimes uh, they work themselves into shoots. As it were. Uh, yeah. And, and this is where it starts getting confusing because you have worked shoots like the famous CM Punk pipe bomb. He did this big storyline where he was bashing WWF and everyone was like, oh, my God, he, how's he getting away with this? But everyone thought that he was going off script, but it was actually part of the script. We should note, interestingly enough, from a human resources perspective, WWE, the wrestlers that perform with WWE are 1099 contractors. So when we apply HR logic to some of these, or you say, can you imagine somebody trash talking their employer? Their dynamic is very different than All Elite Wrestling. The performers there, wrestlers, are actually under contract or W-2 employees. Very different dynamic. In wrestling over the years, it's been this kind of, you kind of go where the work is and it's 1099. There's not insurance. And so when somebody falls and breaks their arm, WWE is smart enough to take care of those individuals. They wouldn't have to. It's really interesting. You're probably aware of this. You know, Andrew Yang, who ran for president, is a very staunch unionization proponent and was going after WWE. When he didn't get the presidential bid, he then, if you remember, he started trying to get the labor secretary job. And he was very clear about, I'm going after WWE, which got me excited because I figured I could go on hostile work environment and be the HR person to talk about. <laughs> and you could do it as well. But it, it's an interesting dynamic. You know, that that is where our world falls in is that you've got these 1099 folks and how they're treated as opposed to the to the actual contracted W-2 employees, the AEW, those being the two big groups, organizations out there right now. Another to tying it back to HR work is workplace culture. And one of the reasons I'm a big proponent and, and just a big fan of AEW is, you know, and, and I don't work there, so I don't know. You just, you, you read these things and you try and read the tea leaves, but it seems overall a much more employee friendly environment where employees at AEW, the wrestlers have a lot more creative control. They have a lot more say in their jobs uh, versus WWE, whatever Vince McMahon says, goes. And it doesn't matter, uh, unless your name is The Undertaker. Other than that, or Brock. Roman Reigns now. <laughs> and Roman Reigns now. Those are the big three. If you're those big three, you can do whatever you want. If you're not them, you do what Vince McMahon says. And to me, I would much rather work for a company like AEW. You, you're watching a lot of AEW right now. You mentioned that you had a chance to, I think you've attended at least a couple of TV tapings now or one, or, and I know you've got one coming up that you're going to get to see that 
some of my friends are pretty jealous about. I got to go to, well, I bought tickets to one. Uh, unfortunately, there was a blizzard uh, in Chicago. Uh, right. So I couldn't, I couldn't go. Um, it, and I was disappointed, but I was going to bring my son. So that would have been his very first. He's only seven. So he doesn't have the attention span per se, but he, he, he likes it enough. At the end of June is uh, AEW and New Japan Pro Wrestling. They're coming for a joint event in Chicago called the Forbidden Door. And for those unfamiliar with the Forbidden Door, it is uh, sort of that gateway between wrestling promotions and wrestling promotions don't promote one another, and, and especially Japan versus America. And Tony Khan's entire shtick is let's break down the Forbidden Door. We sh- we're all wrestling fans. We should all work together. And so it's AEW and New Japan Pro Wrestling joint show. It's going to be so fun. I hope. Uh, and I know it will be. And we should mention Tony Khan is the owner, CEO, promoter, head bottle washer for AEW. Started the promotion with some of the re- some of the wrestlers there, but he, he is the money person behind that group. And, and it's interesting. I think just like this show, uh, we try to be global. Professional wrestling is a global scale. People here primarily know WWE or WWF, and they, and they may know AEW. One of my favorite things right now, and people that follow me on Twitter know I'm a huge fan of Stardom, which is a Japanese women's promotion that's under the same umbrella with New Japan Pro Wrestling. The thing I love about Stardom is that these ladies are incredibly well-trained, and they they put on a show. They know what they're doing. They obviously rehearse and perform together often. So, you know, you mentioned some of the, the, the routines. It is a little more routine than if that's a word, than maybe some of the, <laughs> you know, than say catch wrestling, you know, or, you know, some of the British style wrestling is, is much more Greco-Roman, mm-hmm. more amateur style. But stardom is super fun. And as somebody that does not speak Japanese, I can watch them. I understand who the bad people are and who the good people are. They have these amazing battles where they are beat up. There's a term stiff and, and they work stiff and a lot of the, mm-hmm. <laughs> so some employees can be a little brunt, brusque, uh, that, you know, that'd be working stiff, l- laying it in. Stardom is a very different thing. Uh, there's a comedic element to it that you may not see in other areas. But like I said, for me, it's been super fun to follow that. And like I said, don't speak Japanese, but I can at least understand good versus evil very clearly. And, and watching one person in particular shift from being a, a good lady in a, in a faction on a team that was considered good. Her team lost her in a match. She had to go to the other team. So over the next month, every time you saw her, she's the only wrestler in the promotion that wears a mask. And that mask started going from like my little pony colors, pinks and blues and yellows started going to purples and blacks and dark blues. And she became a heel. She now is where wears all black and purples and, and the masks are always ornate starlight kid one of my favorites because it's just watching her and watching her style of wrestling change. And she does bad things now, you know, and hits people other ways and pokes them in the eye. (laughs) I love this stuff. (laughs) And so do you. That's that's what's so much fun about this. This may be hard in in all your time watching. What's a favorite match or a storyline that you have? Something you'd recommend to somebody that maybe isn't familiar with the product at all. Yeah, this was, this was hard because there's just so many breaths uh, of, you know, decades of watching this stuff, but how can you go wrong with the legendary Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Mr. McMahon storyline? I mean, it transcends wrestling. I mean, for those unfamiliar with it, Stone Cold Steve Austin was this 
uh, stiff, for lack of a better word, you know, uh, employee and big bad Mr. McMahon. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to. So they worked into the storyline to where he was always beating up Mr. McMahon and they were going after each other. And who hasn't had a boss at one time that you just wanted to flip him the bird and, and pour <laughs> beer on him, give him a stunner or something. It just connected to the, just the regular working Joe, uh, Joe or Joette, you know, I mean, I just had a hard time trying to figure out what, what did I like better than that? And I'm sure there might be something, but that is just top of mind. I had a pair of matches that go together and it's and to me, it's the two best matches of the last several years, Walter and Ilya Dragunov. Walter is a Viennese wrestler. He's six, four at the time he was well over 300 and he's just a brute. He's like a beer barrel of him, you know, beer barrel chested, just a big, big hands, big dude. Ilya Dragunov is Russian. He's 5'10 and weighs maybe 200. These guys put on a show. Their first match was in October of 2020. And you can watch these on Peacock if you have that. Or if you're overseas and you have the WWE Network, you can watch. It's on the NXT UK program from October 2020. Walter Ilya was one of the most amazing things I've seen. And, of course, it was without an audience. It was simply the wrestlers and, and the referee there and the camera crew. They put on just an incredible show. Walter is stiff. He His big hands, and when he smacks somebody on the chest – it resonates, and man, it leaves marks. And Ilya, even at his size, left marks on Walter. I am much more of a fan of the in-the-ring beat-em-ups, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I appreciate high-flying, but I really like that Matt-dominated technical-style wrestling, and that's what these guys did. So they have this amazing match. Everybody says, you know, tremendous for what it is. For those people like me, that one of the best things they've seen in a long time. August of 21, for the NXT TakeOver here in the, in the United States, Walter had been the champion for 500 or 800 days, something like that. Long time. They build this whole storyline. And here's the, here's this little Russian, right? The five, five, 10, 200 pound guy against the big Viennese Austrian monster. Paul, I'm telling you that match, that match was in front of an audience and people went bananas. You did not know who was going to win. It was competitive. It was, it was snug and stiff again. They were beating each other up. And like David versus Goliath, which people love a good good versus evil story, Ilya Dragunov wins the title, pins Walter one two three, and the last shot is this little guy compared to the big guy holding the the belt over you know up over his over his head with his foot on Walter's chest. Fantastic storytelling, I just love it. Walter versus Ilya Dragunov, either one of those matches. If you want to see, particularly if you want to see what I would consider more traditional style wrestling, map-based, technical, you can't beat it. Some of the best stuff out there. No, thanks. Uh, I kind of always, at least now, I always forget about NXT, um, but there was a while where NXT was just probably the best. Yeah. It was better, at, at least in my opinion, than in, in a lot of uh, my friends' opinions who are wrestling fans. NXT was superior to WWE. And for a comparison's sake, um, let's say WWD is the major leagues. NXT was the minor leagues. Well, now it's the time everybody was waiting for. And it's not the question connection. We're going to go through our top five lists. And this is a cumulative of all of our experience watching professional wrestling. We're going to share our top five performers. We want to put a caveat out there. And Paul and I talked a little bit about this before we got started. Being the HR philosopher, I said, hey, you know, this is something we need to think about. We want to separate the art from the artist in these cases. Some of these people are not necessarily good people. 
Maybe they can redeem themselves, maybe not. We want to talk about performance in the ring as working the microphone as a speaker, as a performer. Just please keep that in mind because we know some of them have, they, they make poor choices in life. And and like many of us make poor choices, they, they make them and unfortunately they're very public. Yeah, I think it's important, uh, John, to, you know, because I struggle with this too. It's like, how do you, uh, you know, how do you root on somebody or get invested in, in when they make these very human errors? But then that's where I remind myself, you know, they are human just like us. They're not superheroes. They're not uh, Greek gods and goddesses and all those type of things. They are fallible. Now, it doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable, right? But you, 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 you separate the art from the artist and you can appreciate uh, the in-ring and, be, you know, the, the kayfabe stuff versus the real world and real consequence stuff um, within reason, right? So I appreciate you bringing that up. Well, start now. What's your number five? Uh, you know, this one was the hardest one because there was always a whole bunch of people. But I, I did Chris Jericho just because uh, I've been watching him. I mean, he's been in it for 30 plus years and the dude is still reinventing himself. And he's just still one of the most... I think impressive uh, mic skills and, and I think the reinventing himself sort of like Madonna, you know, it's like <laughs> he just doesn't go away and gets better over time somehow. Has a good podcast too. <laughs> yeah. and, and he loves, uh, he loves rock and heavy metal. And so I'm like, Hey, I, I can connect with that. My number five is probably the person that made me put that caveat there about not necessarily making great choices as a human being. My number five is Ric Flair. The man put on a show. Over the years, from from very early on in the AWA and NWA, in the, in the 80s, well before he ever became associated with WWF, WWE, or even after that with TNA and then coming back to WWE to end his career, on the microphone is as good as anyone, if not better. One of the ultimate heels, man, just did it like nobody else. His in-ring style to be able to wrestle an hour a night with the likes of Ricky Steamboat who is also just a phenomenal wrestler and athlete to do the literally night after night after night, 300 nights a year is a real Testament. He's a lot of things. And he wears fancy Rolexes and nice suits. Ric Flair, number five. All right. How about your number four? Number four to me was the bad guy, Razor Ramon. And, uh, he's probably my favorite when I was a little, little kid, you know, um, just cause he was different. And, the dude just had a look. It's hard to explain, but just this Cuban that just shows up, just says, hey, yo, toothpick, not a whole lot of talking, and just uh, beat you in the ring. He was a good guy through the bad guyness of it, if that even makes sense. <laughs> but he was he was just uh, awesome to watch. And one of my favorite matches was uh, WrestleMania 10, him and Shawn Michaels in the first ever ladder match, which just is epic. Uh, and he ended up winning it. Scott Hall, who was R Razor Ramon, very influential throughout his career, not just in, as a wrestler, but behind the scenes and doing different things. You know, you had mentioned before we started recording, I mean, there's a redemption story with, with Scott Hall that that's quite powerful and was positive. He, we re he recently passed away. The goodwill that came out after that and the outpouring of love from throughout that community was was really nice to see. Yeah, he had a lot of demons, and I think it was uh, he was the 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 human story. Just uh, like I mentioned earlier in in the podcast, we're all capable of good things, and we're all capable of bad things. And he did some uh, some bad things when 
his demons got a hold of him, but then he did redeem himself uh, later in life and uh, tried giving back to the community, uh, the wrestling community, that is. My number four will probably not come as a shock to anybody that follows me at all on Twitter. My number four is Asuka. I love Asuka. I'm an unabashed mark for Asuka. She is a Japanese wrestler who has been around for many, many years. I believe she, I think her rookie year was, uh, she's been almost 20 years in the industry. So we're talking early 2000s that she started. Started, uh, actually took a break for some health issues, had, had a child which is one of those things that they keep a big secret of, but it's not secret necessarily, (laughs) but had a child and then came back, was a performer in Japan for many, many years, wrestled alongside Kenny Omega, who, uh, you know, as a, as a tag team, intergender wrestling, particularly in the, in Japan is fascinating because we don't see it a lot here and it's not something every once in a while you might see a, a mixed tag match, but you're not going to see a woman versus a man in the ring at the same time. That is not uncommon there. When she was then known as Kana, so Kana went through the ranks of Japan and came to NXT, WWE, back in 2016, 2017, was the NXT Women's Champion for 510 days and just beat everybody. It was awesome. She had this tear because she's a badass. And I just have the utmost respect for Asuka as, as a wrestler, as a business person. She's incredibly business-minded. She has a background in graphic design has a YouTube channel with a huge following, does a lot of video game stuff and was worked in video games, owns a hair salon. She's, she's just, she's awesome. And I love her. Oscar was my number four. Hard to argue. <laughs> How about your number three? This one uh, is Brian Danielson. He, he holds a special place in my, my wrestling heart because uh, at the time uh, I wasn't into wrestling like uh, mid 2000. Teens, I don't even know what you call those. Uh, the aught, no, the aughts were before, but anyway. And he was wrestling in WWE at the time as Daniel Bryan. He was this smaller guy, high flying, uh, super technical in the ring. And uh, William Regal calls him probably the greatest pure wrestler he's ever seen, which is saying something because William Regal was really, really good at his technicality stuff. He was not the guy. Vince McMahon usually likes to push, right? Vince McMahon likes big dudes that are just giant and bigger than life. Danielson was just a regular guy and made it to where what was eventually the storyline was forced on WWE. They didn't want to do this, but that just showed how powerful he was at the time and how over he was with the crowd that they forced what was called the yes movement, which was his catchphrase. He, He said, yes, yes, yes became WWE champion after having to go through all these hoops. And it had a lot of that early Stone Cold versus Vince McMahon feel to it. And it got me back into wrestling, at least for a little while with WWE in the, in the, the mid 2000 teens and uh, got to go to WrestleMania 30 in new Orleans to see him do that. Nice. That was a trip of a lifetime. Wow. It was <laughs> new and new Orleans, all these wrestling uh, nerds taken over the, uh, the French quarter and, I got to see live NXT at the, the WWE convention before WrestleMania, and then WrestleMania was just one of the coolest experiences ever to see Brian Danielson. Now he's in AEW and doing some really awesome work there with uh, with William Regal in, in what's called the Black uh, Blackpool Combat Club. The whole storyline there is teaching young wrestlers how to be wrestlers. So they've taken Wheeler Yuta under under his wing and Wheeler Yuta is just a badass and, and they're really pushing him and making him shine. And 
That's just Brian Danielson just giving back. That's why I have him up there on my list. Great choice. He's, he is a hell of a performer for sure. My number three is Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, yeah. October 1986, I am in middle school, and I can recall Macho Man jumping off the top rope with the ring bell and hitting Ricky the Dragon Steamboat in the throat and crushing his windpipe. I'm a middle schooler. Like, I should know this by now. It's predetermined because Ricky had to go off and have surgery on something else, so they crushed his larynx and he couldn't talk. But Macho Man, his look, his voice... He had Miss Elizabeth, who I had a huge crush on. She was just (laughs) adorable. Macho Man was such a great performer. He was one of those people that didn't need to wear a belt, didn't have to have a championship to be a star. His match with Steamboat from WrestleMania is one for the books. It's interesting, though, because the more you learn about these things, the more you've determined that that entire match was scripted out. They knew every move verbatim, and they they would recite to each other. He was very specific in detail and wanted everything mapped out. He was bone saw in the Spider-Man movie. I mean, you know, he, yeah. he was one, he's the slim Jim guy for crying out loud. Macho man, unfortunately lost macho man in an auto accident many years ago. Now, one of those people that behind the scenes did so much good for his community was very active and helping, you know, especially children's charities and things. There will never be another macho man. Yeah, no, great, great choice. You're number two. Hope this doesn't come across as just sort of like a, uh, a gimme one, but I think uh, given the context of when I grew up and everything and, and the greater, uh, I think, greater cultural thing, it's The Rock. Whatever it is, the dude has it in spades. Nobody, I mean, in my generation, you know, uh, we have a little bit between, but other than maybe Ric Flair, but nobody was better on the mic than The Rock. And it was just natural. Wrestling, just like everything, changes over time. And during the Attitude Era, when The Rock came up and was doing his stuff, there, there, there were scripts, but you weren't, you didn't have to follow the script per se. You know, you were given a little bit more freedom. And The Rock didn't need a script. He would just go off of and make every promotion promo that he would give the best that you've ever seen. And it was just all natural. And every single catchphrase he did, outstanding but then his in-ring work just kept getting better and better and better as it should and some of the best matches i've ever seen were with the rock because he just knows how to tell a story he knows when to sell uh he knows just what to do and when to do it so i mean uh, and and obviously ever since he's become a cultural phenomenon that's gone way beyond wrestling and he's more successful now than he ever would have been if he stayed in wrestling the rock I cannot fault that choice. And I can remember watching him on his first Saturday Night Live appearance thinking, this guy's got it. That was when it, for me, it, it was, wait a minute, th- he's not going to be a wrestler forever. He's got something. You know, you could tell then that charm, that charisma. He was funny. It, it seemed effortless. I know other people aspire to be him in that world because let's face it, he really, I mean, he is, I, there are people now that probably don't don't know he was ever a professional wrestler. You know, you're young enough, you might know him as the voice of, in the guy in Moana or something. You're not going to know yeah. him as, as The Rock. <laughs> that's funny that you say. It. Yeah, no, that's true. And uh, I never really thought of it like that. But you're you're probably right. And I think that just shows how transcendent, how much he's just transcended uh, what this is. My number two is throwback to growing up watching in the '70s in Memphis wrestling, and it's Jerry Lawler. 
the king, the king of Memphis, the king of wrestling. I had an opportunity to meet him uh, right before COVID. I'd had a negative experience with, I'll just say it, I had a negative experience with Gilbert Gottfried, rest in peace. Mm -hmm. But my experience with Gilbert was just not positive at all. I think now maybe knowing of his illness now, maybe that was part of it. Uh, I was like, oh man, I you know met this guy and that kind of sucked. And then I was going to meet Lawler the next day. And I walked up to Lawler and I said, Mr. Lawler, I've been a fan since the late seventies when I watched you with my grandmother on channel three in Louisville. And he looked up and he said, that was a long time ago. And I said, yes, sir, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked for about five minutes. Jerry Lawler is also a very accomplished artist, went to college on an art scholarship, got into wrestling because he drew drawings of the wrestlers in Memphis. And that's how he got his start. But he still draws and he'll go to comic book conventions and draw wrestlers, superheroes. He he's big. He owns a Batmobile. I mean, come on. How can I not like a guy who owns a, bat, a 66 Batmobile, no less? But anyway, uh, Jerry Lawler, if you go back and if you ever are interested in territory wrestling, watch that stuff from Memphis. He was the co-owner of the territory, which is part of the reason he was he was a heel and a face over the years. He did play both parts but way before he got to WWE and was an announcer and looking at the ladies he was an amazing performer and he threw fire at people like, come on, like can't beat that stuff. You don't, we don't see that. Oscar spits, spits the green mist. Maybe that's why I like her too. I like anybody that's got some kind of paraphernalia. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. My, uh, my experience with uh, the King is, is mostly as the ring announcer. So knew him as the heel counterpart to good old JR Jim Ross. Um, so I, I didn't know him as a wrestler per se. So, I would have to go back and YouTube a lot of his uh, his stuff, but I, I, I know enough of him legendary. <laughs> There's you know? ample stuff. Yeah. And what's fun is watching him with a then eight, 17, 18, 19 year old Jeff Jarrett, because you know, he owned the he owned the territory with Jarrett's dad. Funny how all that world works. We've covered a bunch of people quick. I, I, I gotta know now. I've heard rock, I've heard a couple names. Number one. Should come as probably a very little surprise, but Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean <laughs> The dude, when when you're a, a teenager going through uh, puberty and you got all these hormones hopping up and all that stuff. I mean, Stone Cold was the perfect, it was just a perfect storm. The dude had the attitude that you wanted to be. Uh, you were rebellious at, you know, 13, 14, 15. He, he was living the dream. He was a uh, beer swilling, just cussing, mud hole stomping dude. And it was just like. Man, I hate my boss at Kmart. I want to stone cold stun him and, and <laughs> slam some brewskis down. It was just like, and and come on, he had the most iconic T-shirt wrestling T-shirt of all time. Just simple Austin three sixteen with the smoking skull on the back. And when I wore that shirt, I felt like a badass, even though I wasn't. It's uh, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin all day. I think Stone Cold's another interesting one in that his in ring career is fairly limited. You know, he hasn't he up until this last WrestleMania, which I'm assuming you watched it, that part of it, man, his his return was about as good as it could be. And then when he came back Sunday night was hilarious for, for the second <laughs> night. The thing I really appreciate about Stone Cold, and I would have never imagined this having watched him when he was at his height as a wrestler. He's a really good interviewer. His show, the Stone Cold uh, Sessions, his podcast was good, but I really like the show he's doing for WWE now on Peacock, Smoking Skull Sessions. He's just a great interviewer, and I love he's just no nonsense about it all. I, I, I really, I really enjoy listening to him talk to other wrestlers about their careers. He, he gets it because he's done it. A lot of wrestlers they try and work, you know, the gimmick. They try and do these things to create the character. 
Stone Cold was Stone Cold. That was his character. I mean, and, you know, to be able to get to play yourself to such a degree, I think just kind of speaks to how talented he really was. And you're right. Uh, if it wasn't for that unfortunate, he broke his neck with uh, Owen Hart, a botch uh, pile driver, you know, that cut his career down by at least a decade, uh, if not more. But, you know, when, when he was in the ring, during the height of the Attitude Era, and even a little bit beyond that. I mean, there was no one better. My number one is Rowdy Roddy Piper. MJF, who is a current wrestler, Maxwell Jacob Freeman, who I think has the potential to be the greatest performer of his generation. He's currently with AEW. MJF talks about how much he watches Piper even now. And you can see a lot of how Piper... Piper was a heel. He was always a heel. He was a great heel. I love the fact that he never liked Hogan in real life. He never took a pen from Hogan in WWF. He didn't care about the money. He's like, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm going to do it the way I did. He's another one of these guys that didn't have to wear a championship title to draw a crowd. People hated Piper. And Piper was a kid from Canada. He was, a, he was an orphan, legit orphan in Canada who was in a pipe group. And so his shtick when he started was playing the bagpipes. He literally, with a bunch of other wrestlers, got in a car and came. they snuck him across the border. And that's how he got started wrestling in the U.S. Piper had a great podcast. It's, you can't find it anymore. You can find a handful of episodes still, but it was the Piper's Pit, just like his TV show, his show within the show on WWE. I mean, let's face it. He hit a coconut over another guy's head on his talk show. I mean, he, he put Andre and Hulk together before WrestleMania, and that whole bit happened in the Piper's Pit. He was just part of so many things. He's in They Live. He has one of the greatest action lines in an action movie of all time about bubblegum and kicking ass. But my favorite thing about Roddy Piper, besides just the fact he was awesome and wore a kilt and did these things, he is one of three people, real people, to be in G.I. Joe. You had Sergeant Slaughter. Everybody knew Slaughter's Marauders. As a Chicago person, you would appreciate if you didn't know, William the Refrigerator Perry has a G.I. Joe action figure. But Rowdy Roddy Piper was the athletic trainer for Destro's group, <laughs> the Iron Grenadiers. And so I actually have a sketch of Roddy Piper, an uh, Iron Grenadiers t-shirt with a kilt on, jumping over Cobra soldiers, how to train them. Roddy Piper, I loved that guy. I was so upset when he passed. Not a flawless individual. He had his issues, but he was also very open about them. And I, and I appreciated that about him. You can watch all his stuff on, you can watch a lot of his stuff on Peacock, particularly though it's the talk show stuff with Heenan. It's gold, man. It's absolute gold. Can't recommend it enough. Uh, it's great. And, uh, and you bring up MJF and Piper. I think it was with Piper where I first started realizing, uh, and maybe a little bit of Triple H, but when you're right, when you were little or younger and not what they call a smart mark or whatever you want to call it, you know, you didn't really get it. You hated them. And then you realize if you hated them, they were doing their job better than anybody else. That's right. And you're like, okay, I, I get it. And that's where it started to turn and you started appreciating like Rowdy Roddy Piper for just his talent and what he, he was able to do. Paul, we have gone well past a half hour, which is just fine because it's our show and we can. I can't thank you enough for saying yes to making time on a weekend to to get together, uh, to, to catch up and talk a little shop, but talk even something more about something I know that, again, we both appreciate so much. I, I'm 
I'm hoping that some of the listeners that are still with us have <laughs> learned something maybe today, or we'll go check some of this stuff out. Or if you're into professional wrestling and you didn't know that we talk about it on there, check out the HR Marks uh, hashtag on Twitter. But, um, you know, again, I'm glad we're here. I I know most of our listeners are probably connected with you, but if they're not, best way for them to reach, reach you out there. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just go, uh, type in my name and then on Twitter, uh, HRPaul49. And of course, you can find me on uh, on my blog at hrphilosopher.com. Of course, uh, you can find me on Twitter every second and fourth Sunday, HR Social Hour. Uh, you can find that at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. How about you, John? How can people find you? Well, first off, thanks to Namely for sponsoring this episode. They may be a little surprised at what they get this time, but thank you for being part of this. As for me, johntherman.com for all things John Thurman for the show, hrsocialhourpodcast.podbean.com. Listen, rate, review, share, follow. And if you, again, if you've reached it this far, we know you're doing that and we appreciate it. International listeners, particularly if you're into professional wrestling, get in touch because I'd love to talk about whatever they do where you are. And Paul would too. We love this stuff. Reach out because it's easier for you to get in touch with us than for us to get in touch with you. And we'd love to have those conversations. So Paul, again, I appreciate being with me. I know you've listened to this for a while. So you think you can help me with the close? Oh, give me a hell yeah, John. Honored to. (laughs) Well then, so for the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast, I'm John. And I'm Paul. And as always, be sure to connect, give back, and network. network. Take care, everybody. And that's the bottom line, because John and Paul said so. 